This is Marbell, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the Director's Notes podcast. This week we return to the London Film Festival, where I got to spend time with award-winning Danish director Brodajit Sturmusa to discuss Darling, her intense story of pain and perfection which unfolds in the demanding world of professional ballet. In our interview, Brodajit describes how her decision to take a naturalistic and inventive approach to filming, which avoided repetition in shot setups across different takes, infused the edit with a wealth of dynamic material. Welcome to the Director's Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, my pleasure to have you. We have got a tradition around here, speaking to directors, where we get back to the roots of your passion with the question of what is it that brought you to filmmaking and directing? What brought me to filmmaking and directing? You know, I'm so old that it goes really far back <laughs> that I'm not sure. You know, I think about it from time to time, what brought me, because it, I can't tell you anything sort of concrete. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, like a story that's very concrete about it. But I think, uh, you know, when you get to something and you actually stick with it, there's something that draws you to it. And for me, I think it's um, this ability to sort of create another world, you know, besides the world that we live in. That draws me in quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if there was a point. I did film studies first. And I, after I got my bachelor, I sort of ran away screaming. Because the analytical side got too... Uh, it became untrue to me. Mm-hmm. And during my studies, I did a, a certain amount of practical work. Like, and, and a lot of editing, actually. Yeah. And projects, there was like a practical part of it. And I did a lot of still photography. So I sort of come from still photography, I guess. It mm-hmm. would be the straight answer. Yeah. I know that you um, did your initial studies in Denmark, then you went over to the States and you worked over there for around 14 years. So what is it that drew you back home, I suppose, to continue your work? I mean, I actually did film studies in Copenhagen and then I married to an American and he wanted to do a PhD. So I moved with him to the US and I kind of, you know, appropriately floundered around for some years, (laughs) you know, as I think one should when one is in one's 20s. And there I, I continued to do a lot of still photography and I also um, was considering directing and going to graduate school for directing. And then I took a, a cinematography course at the film school where I ended up going and I enjoyed it so much that I decided to apply and I actually enjoyed the student body so much that I decided to apply. And before that I'd worked as a researcher for some years on documentaries. So I worked with somebody who's now deceased, uh, Saul Landau, who did the first documentary with Fidel Castro. I worked as an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of, uh, you know, plodded around a bit. <laughs> and then I went to film school. And by the time I'd finished film school, I had my daughter. So going back to Denmark was kind of a mixture between um, a private decision that I wanted my daughter to grow up in Scandinavia and not in the US. <laughs> in hindsight, that seems like a great choice now where the, yes, the States are yes, today. Yes, actually, she's in New York now. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, it was around the time when, when Dogma had had a lot of success and, and the Danish film business seemed like a very vibrant place. And I was hard-pressed. Maybe it had to do with being a female director as well, but I was really hard-pressed to find any role models in the US that had a career that I could have. And more importantly, they made the kind of films that I liked. Yeah. So I didn't really identify with the filmmaking very strongly. Mm-hmm. And I identified more strongly with the European filmmaking. So, you know, when I was young, directors like Chantal Ackermann inspired me a lot. 
you know, there's nothing more, you know, European art cinema than her. <laughs> so that's why. You mentioned there um, the research work that you did on documentaries and as well as fiction films, you also have made documentaries yourself. Do you feel more at home in one field or another or are they kind of both equal to you? I'm, I'm not a documentary filmmaker, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trained in the documentary tradition. The school I went to has a strong tradition for documentary verite filmmaking mm-hmm. and has strong tradition for experimental filmmaking. But actually, if anything, I'm a little more out of something more experimental than documentary. But at this point, I'm completely a fiction filmmaker. Like, I wouldn't be comfortable making a straightforward documentary. What I have made is I have done a stage documentary. I've done a couple of sort of stage pieces that are working in actually a very uh, formalistic and uh, directed way with real people. Mm. And I did one call out of love with uh, street children in Kosovo. That's sort of my most important thing. And I call that a documentary, but documentarians argue with me. Yeah, I'm not always allowed to. (laughs) Sometimes I'm allowed, sometimes not. But I I sort of call it a documentary to challenge the genre Mm -hmm. a bit. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they're real people with real stories. So to me, that's that must be documentary. Yeah. (laughs) Our audience, um, at least the majority of them, wouldn't have had a chance to have seen Undarling. So um, could you just tell us a little bit about what the film is about, the themes? Sure. The film is a story of a ballerina who comes back to Denmark to perform Giselle at the Danish Royal Ballet, at the Royal Danish Ballet, together with her husband, who is a choreographer, Franz. And um, very early on during rehearsals, she has... uh, an injury that flares up and that turns out to end her career. And the film is about her crisis, you know, the end of her career, how she deals with that, the trouble that it causes in her relationship to her husband, her trying to find a new way in the world and trying to deal with this. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard other dancers refer to it, you know, that a dancer dies twice and the first time they die is when their dancing career ends. Yeah. So it's about that point in her life. One of the elements that I found really interesting about the film, which I suppose is you know universal for anyone who's outside of the world of dancing, is the idea of the power dynamic of the couple. So you know, Franz was always kind of on her coattails, mm. you know, but now it's him taking the lead. And I'm just interested about building that aspect as well into the film and how you worked with that slow shift of power and then there's a point where she actually throws that in his face as well Mm. and you know Mm. the way that that destabilizes their relationship Mm. yeah for me there's definitely a story of a a, quite a modern couple where it's not really clear who is the most sort of powerful or successful or why that is and i think there are more and more couples where this is true where the woman actually has a a bigger career than the man Mm -hmm. But I think it's often, like I once, I belong to this network of very successful, a lot of them business women in Denmark. And I was at some dinner and I was sitting between two of them, just listening to the conversation. And one of them, she said, well, you know, when I go out on a date with the so-and-so, her boyfriend, she said, you know, I always give him a little bit of money before so he can pay the bill. <laughs> you know, so this, how do you sort of keep up? the sexual tension, the attraction in the relationship when that power shifts 
and you know she really puts it in his face at one point <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah she certainly does yeah this was written by um kim phillips augerson who also um wrote um your first feature um room 304 yeah but it was um developed from an idea that the two of you had so what were the roots that first led you to want to you know tell a story in in the world of um you know dance and ballet yeah, Phobes and I, we, we met, and this, this is kind of what happened on both films, I would say, you know, we met and said, what should we do, and started to, Phobes is like, he's this amazing idea bank, so he will just keep shooting out plot ideas, character ideas, he has a wealth of it, <laughs> so in a way it's a little bit like going into a candy store and says, do I want the blue candy or do I want the yellow candy today <laughs> and so he and I was sort of shooting a lot of ideas back and forth and talking about environments you know and he gave me one script and I didn't really like it oh I liked it but I didn't think it was something I should do as the next thing and and then I think at one day he came and said well what do you think about doing something in the ballet world mm -hmm. and I've actually always wanted to do something with dance on film mm -hmm. men it's because it's a whole different it's like its own genre and I've been pursuing the fiction work so I sort of had an immediate interest when he said that mm -hmm. and I'm also I'm married to somebody who's classically trained as a violinist so the whole classical performance world I know quite well from him and from the friends that we have from that world so I was quite interested and I think also because I was or am <laughs> a little disenchanted with this amateurish culture around art mm -hmm. you know I really believe in art that's been perfected or that has some sublimity to it or or really is something special when people say elitist they mean it negatively but I think it'd be nice to also think of it as a positive thing so is that you talking directly to the audience when darling's talking about um, like you're not tired that's not pain you know I dance on a broken foot like that is you know pain to get to the perfection is you know is that you talking to the audience I can though? definitely relate to that very much mm -hmm. you know and also when she says to him you know there was a time when a good enough wasn't good enough and we would just uh, eat ourselves and do the last five percent or when Christian says, you know, you don't become anything without getting hurt along the way. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe all that is true. I don't think that artistic achievement comes without a price. And I don't think it should. Yeah. I actually don't like when it comes without a price. <laughs> if I see it around me, I get a little suspicious. <laughs> um, Danica Churchich. Churchich. <laughs> um, she is fabulous in that role. But I was reading, this is her first leading role yes. so what brought um, her to this project Danica is my opinion our biggest talent mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of people's opinions she's not a, a secret <laughs> you know she's very uh, sought after and highly thought of but somehow there's been no leading roles mm -hmm. for somebody a woman her age in Danish film since she graduated in 2012 so I sometimes teach acting for film workshops for actors here and there and I taught her at the theater school where she went. I did a course that was like a mixture of the directing students from the film school and the graduating students from the theater school. And she was in the class. So I met her there and I immediately thought, wow, she's really fabulous. Mm -hmm. It was very apparent, very clear. So I became friendly with her and, you know, we would talk. And I always had in mind that I would like to do something with her mm -hmm. someday. So in that way, it wasn't a difficult choice. Yeah. You know? What was the conditioning routine that your actors had to go through? Because instantly, as soon as they come on the screen, they look 
like dancers, but I know that they're not dancers. So kind of, yeah. you know, what was the hell that you had to put them through to yeah. get them ready? And also to move, just even the way, even when they're not dancing, the way they move through the frame. Elegance. Yeah, you know, in a way the film is like two projects because there's a project of the whole drama, which is what you do for every film, mm -hmm. you know, and everything. And then there's the whole dance part of the film, which required its own preparation and its own work. And especially on the actor's part, a really huge dedication. And especially for Danica, because she uh, was the lead in the film and was a ballerina, you know, that we are saying on an international level, not just somebody who can dance. Yeah. So Danica, she had many people training her. Uh, she had several people from the Danish Royal Ballet. And she did Pilates and swimming, and she had a dietist, and she lost, uh, I think, 14 kilos mm. for the role, and trained, you know, every day for months to be prepared. And what you can achieve in that period is, you know, she sculpted her body, mm. so it looked like a dancer's, and then she worked a lot on the movements of the dancer, because we used, of course, body doubles for any kind of real dancing. Nobody can learn that in less than, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And then we had two really wonderful choreographers from the UK, mm -hmm. Francesca Janes and Dale Mercer, that were on board and they have worked on a, on a lot of films, Tim Burton, Mike Lee's films. So they were very used to, not only to work with the choreography, which of course is important, but also they're really used to working with actors and assisting them in appearing like a dancer or, you know, any day where we had a dance on set, they were present. Yeah. And we had a quite extensive rehearsal process because, you know, it might look not noticeable in the film. I hope it's not noticeable. Mm -hmm. But all the scenes that had choreography and drama at the same time are quite complicated to make mm -hmm. because the choreography dictates the rhythm of the scene because that's a given the choreography you can't change in a classical ballet yeah. it's not modern dance so that's a given it goes to a piece of music and the drama happens when it happens during the choreography you actually have to sort of get that so much in place so you can act the scene to the music in a way mm -hmm. which is not the way i usually work with drama yeah. so we had to rehearse those scenes extensively to get everybody comfortable and to really feel free yeah because i wanted to ask you about the cinematography and finding the balance between the intensity of those you know training sessions and the practice and the practice and the practice and then a lot of the film is you know in their hotel room which is kind of a lot more still i mean things explode later on but it's a lot more of a still space so yeah. that balance and how you found your style to marry those two very different energies throughout the film you know the film is shot with a quite sort of a naturalistic approach like we didn't work with lights we primarily worked with natural light we didn't have a lighting truck or even much of a lighting package or, or people in the light we had no lighting department either we had a gaffer who could change a bulb if need, <laughs> need be um, we were quite aware of how we wanted there to be this feeling that they had this private space where they can look different and behave differently. Mm -hmm. And then there's this semi-public space, which is a ballet, the rehearsal rooms, where they look different, behave differently, everything is, is different. So visually, also in our choice of locations, you know, the hotel is a very muted space yeah. and kind of above the city, so it has this detached feeling. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I should actually also say, I mean, now we only talked about Danica in terms of the ballet preparations, but Gustav Skarsgård also is incredibly like a dancer and a choreographer. Yeah. To the point that we had the Danish Royal Ballet saw the film the week before last and somebody said, you know, that guy, was he a dancer? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he worked with um, several dancers, that the Swedish Royal Ballet, and also trained very hard. Yeah. Yeah. That um, thing you said earlier about the way that the choreography dictated the drama, yeah. how much did that um, tie your hands in the edit, in, in post? It did lock the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as there's some choreography, we were locked. I mean, we had a shooting style, a way that I've worked before, and it's it's partly a, a way that keeps it alive, but it also a way of utilizing the time mm-hmm. to its most. So we had this principle, the cinematographer, Mike Visa and I, that we tried not to repeat a shot. So this idea of doing take by take of the same thing, we didn't do. So if we had to uh, redo something, then we also would you know, be inventive visually. I find that technique really works. It gives the cinematographer a lot of freedom because things can happen. You can lose some performance here and there. That's the one drawback. But all the gifts you get in the edit room, the, the wealth of material is really great. And that helps this problem of a locked scene mm-hmm. because you have some material that's quite alive. So you can keep the scene alive. You're not stuck in a shot where there is shot that's just not really working, for example. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The film received um, at least some of the funding from the Danish Film Institute, the yes. Stin Billy Consultancy Scheme. Yeah. yeah. How does that speak to the ability to get projects financed? So, you know, like over here and in the States, particularly now, public financing is dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. Yeah. Is that something that is more alive and more accessible in Denmark, do you think? Well, we have a very strong film funding system in mm-hmm. Denmark, but, you know, the business is under duress because of the digital shift. So, you know, even though there is a strong system in place, the whole uh, film business is, is under quite a bit of duress because it's just the financial model doesn't work mm. as well as it used to. Yeah, And it does add some conformity in the process because there are many more players that are concerned about doing something that's going to be a secure success mm-hmm. if there ever was such a thing. Yeah. Not too long ago, um, you directed um, three episodes of television. Yeah. How was that experience? The idea of in television, it's the showrunner who is the director, so to speak, and directors kind of come on a more of a role serving that vision. Right. Yeah, I directed Norsko. You know, in Denmark, the concept of the showrunner, I think it's sometimes used. Did uh, Gry, who is the writer on the project, call herself a showrunner? Maybe. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but the way I look at it is it was more of a collaborative effort Mm -hmm. you know and of course it's more collaborative than when I do my feature film yeah there are more people that I have to listen to and whose opinions or intentions I have to respect Mm -hmm. that's kind of the premise whether that's good or bad I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I obviously prefer to work in a way where what I'm trying to tell comes through as strong as possible Mm -hmm. you know the tv model is uh it's in danger of being of watering down whatever somebody has to say. That's the problem with TV. Yeah. Filmmaking, to me, at the core of it is that a person has something they want to tell. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it a piece of work in the end, Yeah, is that this person had this thing they wanted to tell about. 
and in TV, you know, because the power is so much more, it's more dissipated amongst many people, TV stations with final cut, producers, writers, directors, showrunners, you know, so it's more collaborative, you could say, but it does uh, make this concept of having something that's a vision or something that's something somebody has to say, it can become very weakened in that process. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who teaches from time to time, okay. is there an attitude that you try to impart or instill in the students who are going to be new entrants into this field of, of film that you kind of want them to take away? I think um, actually this idea of that you have, uh, you know, you could call it an agenda if you want to be really sharp, or you could just call it some mission with what it is that you do, or, you, you know, some idea about what it is that you do and why it's important to you at least that has to be strong you know to be a director for the sake of being a director i think is a weak position to take mm -hmm. in the world that students go into now yeah and i think the students that will do well are the ones who come out and really have a very strong sense of what it is that they represent and what it is that they can tell about and what's unique about what they can tell about so I think the specific and the unique is going to be much stronger than this sort of old patriarchal idea of the big old uh, Hitchcock-like director mm -hmm. who just, you know, can direct. And I think that's of past times. And um, finally, um, you know, I know that you're just here at the festival with um, <laughs> Darling, but are there any other projects that you're currently working on that you, you can tell us anything about? Sure. I have a project which is actually... Uh, something that I wrote together with a Danish dramatist, uh, Peter Esmussen, many years ago. He's now unfortunately deceased. He also was a writer on Breaking the Waves and one of the great writers for Danish stage. And he and I wrote a script that's an, a modern adaptation of Miss Julie that I very much would like to do. And then I did this uh, documentary or stage documentary with the street children in Kosovo. And I did that about nine years ago. And I've been following a number of the, the kids who are now adults. And I would actually really like to go back and tell the story of how it is for them today. Because Kosovo is, you know, a country that's kind of been forgotten a bit in Europe, but it's a really uh, strong case of what's, what's a post-war country like. Yeah. And what is it like when, you know, the West tries to build up a democracy in a place where it wasn't before. It's one of the poorest places in Europe. And a lot of things have happened in Kosovo in the last nine years. But the one thing that hasn't really happened is that the poor people are still just as poor as they were before. Mm -hmm. So I would like to go back and, and um, find all the kids again and see what kind of story there is with them today. Also what's happened is that a lot of, not, not a lot, I don't know yet, but a num number of them have been, um, you know, there's a lot of Saudi Arabian charities that have gone in Kosovo and have given, you know, poor families money to become more religious. Oh, okay. But, you know, if you have nothing, it's very hard to say no to 200 euros a month if that's what feeds your family. Yeah. So obviously these kids have been subjected to that more than middle class people in Kosovo. So a number of them have been turned quite religious through this. Mm -hmm. And I'm also really curious about that because only one of them was religious when I filmed with them nine years ago. Yeah. 
So I'd like to investigate that as well. Mm, sounds like an interesting project. Thank um, you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Same here. It was nice. Thank you. I'm really pleased to have you with us on the podcast and particularly those of you who've subscribed and left comments or ratings for director's notes. If you're feeling left out, it takes but a few moments for you to do the same and share the gift of the director's notes podcast with a new audience. I'll be back soon with my interview with director Dustin Guy DeFay for his quintessential New York indie feature, Person to Person. But of course, until then, you should head over to directorsnotes.com where you can read our daily filmmaker interviews. Speak to you soon. Thank you.